Hello, and welcome to SaaS Scaling Secrets, the podcast that dives into the trenches with the leaders of the best scale-up B2B SaaS companies. I'm your host, Dan Balkowski, founder of Product Tranquility. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Siddharth Sriran, co-founder and CEO of Spendflow. Sid is celebrated for his innovative approach to controlling SaaS spend. His expertise extends beyond SaaS spend management. He has played pivotal roles at companies like Zap Mobility and Volta Charging, honing his skills in business operations and supply chain strategy. Renowned for creating value through intelligent procurement strategies, Sid is dedicated to empowering modern finance leaders, harnessing the potential of SaaS as a catalyst for growth. Join me as we explore Sid's unique stories and cover the secrets to his success and reveal his strategies to scale Spendflow successfully. Let's dive in. Welcome, Sid, to SaaS Scaling Secrets. Thank you, Dan. Thank you so much for having me as well. I truly appreciate it. I'm very excited for our conversation today, Sid. For the listeners in our audience who are not intimately familiar with you, could you please just briefly introduce yourself and tell us a little about your journey in the SaaS world? I'm Sid. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Spendflow. Um, I grew up in India. Then I actually wanted to join like a high growth startup. So I had to get to the Valley. And the best place to do that was to get to grad school. I went to grad school in Boston, then joined a couple of early stage startups in San Francisco. The last one I joined was a company called Volta Charging. We went from seat to IPO during my time there. And I had like a I, like, I learned a ton, right? It was like learning on learning at the fire hose, I see. So it was during my time there that I like, the entrepreneurship bug really bit me. I saw people creating companies. I saw a lot of my friends doing it, uh, but also not that. It, it just I felt like a group of people coming together and creating something. And I saw that and I was part of that movement. It really inspired me to go start something as well. I didn't know what it was, but um, a bunch of ideas and like a bunch of problems that I faced. And that's how we actually ended up at Spendflow. Just so I'm aware and your audience is aware. So the Volta charging though, that was not in the software space specifically. It was more in no. the hardware space, correct? Yeah, it was actually, we, Volta was like, we built the largest free electric vehicle charging infrastructure network in North America. So uh, it was very different business, uh, but we did build a lot of software, but it was like a hardware, software, supply chain, media sales. It was very, very different type of business. But what it did have is a ton of software spend. So that was when the, uh, that was when the idea was when forgive about because my CFO and I never got along and I was the guy buying and renewing a lot of the SaaS. So SaaS spend, she's like, she used to walk up to me every quarter and say, Sid, I think you're spending too much money. Go figure out what it is and go cut it by half. That was when like, okay, this is an ongoing problem. I started asking around. I'm like, I don't want to do this job. Like nobody, nobody gets paid to buy or renew SaaS inside a company. It's a super hard job. It's extremely complicated. It's post, I think after maybe like a merger or an acquisition or something, it's the second most complicated type of agreement that you're working on within the company. Because, I mean, let's face it, we vendors make it really hard with those agreements. Uh, and pricing is really hard, like super opaque. It's decentralized buying. Average company uses 120 different SaaS tools. There's eight different stakeholders in the buying and renewal of SaaS, right? So it's a really hairy problem. Uh, that's when I decided, okay, let me go solve this problem, right? It was me first, and then I... Uh, convinced two of my co-founders to join. And uh, yeah, now we're about like 120 people now. So it's uh, it's been a great journey. Well, that's a fascinating story. You started your kind of journey into, hey, I wanted to get to Silicon Valley. And, uh, so I go to Boston and, and SF. But if we had to rewind the clock a little earlier and say, oh, it was a researcher that was looking at <laughs> young Sid from 12 to 18, would they have noticed anything unusual? Any spark that would portend this future path for you? So I grew up around entrepreneurs. My dad was an entrepreneur. So that really helped. He was a first generation entrepreneur. So growing up, that's, I thought that was the only job like 
that everybody had. I didn't necessarily have a bunch of professionals around me. I didn't have like family that were lawyers or family that were like doctors. Most of my family was like actually entrepreneurs. And growing up, I saw that my dad did well for himself. He created a thing and I saw that he struggled. He succeeded. There was a lot of things that he did. He went through. And I was very sure that I never wanted to do what he did. <laughs> so that was actually the crux of it. The business that he like, uh, I, I never wanted to do that. And I said, but the joy of having a team around you and like them uh, coming over, they used to come sit down with me when I was at, like I was a kid. They used to come say hi to me and they used to like work with me. And they're really smart people. That truly kind of made me realize I'm like, hey, like I get to work with people that I want and I get to do what I want. That type of freedom is... I was always clear that I wanted to do something. Um, and honestly, a part of me kind of feels wanted to get uh, get away from like my father's shadow, right? Like in some way or form. So I think that's, that chip on my shoulder still exists. It's something that makes me, uh, it's like, hey, the 12 to 18, it's the, that's the chip that I had. You said like, I, I know I never wanted to do what he was doing. I don't know if you were referring to entrepreneurship in general. No, I think like his industry, he was in construction. So that's a very difficult very different ball game altogether. He used to be in construction. I, I, that's very, very different. Like, that's something that I never wanted to do. Entrepreneurship? Yes, that's something that I really wanted to do. Because <laughs> I could very easily read that two different ways. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, entrepreneurship's not an easy path. So it could be easy to draw yeah. that lesson and be like, yeah, I don't want to deal with the stress of the volatility. <laughs> no, I, did. I meant like construction, which is the business he was in. Uh, not so much the entrepreneur. I, I love the part about him assembling the team and him working with the team. Him growing as well. It was like I saw it in front of my eyes. So that was something that I that really inspired me, actually. You already kind of introed a little bit about SpedFlow and kind of how you got the idea for that. I want to pivot a little bit to talk a little bit about your experience growing that company. Before we do that, though, before we press record, we were talking about our mutual acquaintance, Randy Wooden, CEO of Maxio. And one of the fascinating sets of conversations that I with with him, you know, Maxio has this Maxio Institute where they publish benchmark reports. I think SpendFlow is in a, a kind of an interesting, similar area where you guys see a lot of spend going through your yeah. system across these i'm we are in an interesting time let that yeah. the old chinese curse may you live an interesting time <laughs> in the SaaS world you know what are you seeing from your perspective what are the notable spending trends you're observing in the SaaS market given your position at spendflow i'm glad you mentioned randy randy's been uh, randy's been like uh, amazing inspiration for me and how we operate so i'm uh, truly uh, truly lucky to have met him so in terms of like the benchmarks, right? So we've analyzed about two and two point three billion dollars of SaaS spend over the last two and a half years, right? That's a lot of SaaS spend in terms of what we've analyzed, and uh, most of our customers are in the mid market. So we don't necessarily deal with enterprises. Uh, so it's not a very good reflection of enterprise software spend. It's a very it's a good reflection of mid market software spend. So what we're seeing in the last year or so, we're seeing a lot of the SMB, the lower mid market segment cut software spend. And when I mean cut, it's like a 30% deep cuts, right? Like 30% or 25% cuts in terms of Lexus software spend. Uh, and I mean, like just not renewing, right? So NRRs have got hit, hit in, like we see the spends dropping on a large section of these SaaS tolls. But at the same time... Just elimination entirely. Just not Elimination like entirely. Like just, no, just like we're not yeah. going to use those tools. Yeah, I think it's a combination of like budget, Yes, CFO is really asking the question that do you really need this? Uh, and and it, when when you're laying off like 20% or 15%, your software spend is going to get cut even deeper than that. Mm -hmm. So that's something that we're seeing. 
that we saw actually it's already done in 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 our view uh, most of the pain is already out of the system is what uh, what my sense is we think what we're seeing is an uptick in terms of just because q4 is annual budgeting time and there's budgets we spend we're seeing a little bit of an uptick this uh, this quarter specifically on net new uh, additions right people actually spending money on yeah i need to grow again let's start spending money on your gtm stack because nobody spend money on gtm stack right that's something that people are spending money on um people are spending a little bit more money and thoughtfully this time not like they think oh, thoughtfully spending money on uh, on software uh, sales cycles have uh, as, like the average sales cycle outside the spendflow system in the mid market 92 days or so 90 90 92 days uh, inside the spendflow ecosystem is about 42 days so but now even inside the spendflow ecosystem it's become like 52 days or so right because people are taking their time to make decisions um that's something that we're seeing in terms of like sales cycles and buying cycles and in terms of spend we're seeing an uptick now in q4 but we see uh, we see that the smb segment has gotten uh, hit a lot more than the mid market uh, uh mid market per se so um, that's something that we're seeing as well and uh, we think it it'll get back to a sense of normalcy and i mean by i mean normalcy is 2018 2019 levels of saas normalcy not like 2020 no that's not going to happen ever like for at least like the next 5 or 7 years but like it, what people don't realize is a lot of these tools have gotten really sticky right so like it's just that the number of saas tools has exploded the last 3 years even if it comes down by 20% it's still 40% higher than what they used to spend in 2018 right so or 2019 it's still much much higher so it's still going to grow at about 10% or 11% this year to next year so it's just rationalization that's happening Yeah and you said you are seeing an uptick on spend in Q4 is that so we would expect sort of you see this monotonic increase Q1 Q2 Q3 Q4 kind of on a repeating pattern but are yeah. you guys seeing an increase uh, over say 2022 Q4 to 2023 Q4 are you seeing No I'm just doing quarter to down? quarter I'm still I'm okay. talking about Q3 2023 to Q3, Q4 2023 that uptick Q4 2022 was yeah, everybody was still spending money so it's not a very good uh comparison so to we're still like down year over year yeah yeah it's still it's still down year over year yeah yeah i don't think like mm-hmm. 2021 2020 2022 is going to come back necessarily in terms of like absolute growth but in uh, so it is still really it's still a really strong market right there's no question about it people who get stuck to their workflows you, know, you still need people to get their job done right and the question is that people will not work without the tools that they really want and that's something that we've learned over and over again and that's why building a community around what you're building building some building that sense of like brand and community around what the tool stands for uh, is is becoming even more important right now and you made a distinction early on in in uh, when you're answering around SMB versus mid market spend understanding that spend flows yeah. customers are not necessarily an enterprise so so yep. looking at SMB mid market are you seeing um what are, i guess as you compare SMB versus mid market uh, are you seeing any different trends there than what yeah. you just outlined yeah apart from the the drop in spend in the SMB the mid market the beauty of the mid market is that it they're actually getting a lot tighter and a lot more operationally efficient so you can actually see that happening versus in the SMB it's just um, it's a little bit of whiplash right it's like reactive so it, they go down and spend one quarter but some 
like just one or two tools the in the next quarter will bring them back up because the, they're not dealing with millions of dollars of software spent but now the mid market is getting a lot more conscientious about how they spend money how they control their spend is it gone through the right process so uh, and that's reflecting in sales cycles now so okay. that reflection in sales cycles or buying cycles is now a thing but i think it's short term and then if people become people really follow the right processes and the right systems uh, and have the right teams and the right people i think a buying cycles will drop right like significantly i think um, that's something that will happen but it's going to take some time because honestly has had like a finance teams have had a really tough time this year so they don't want to be buying more software right now if you have some saas ceos or leadership listening to this right would you have any advice for them on yeah. how they could avoid getting on the chopping block like practices or, or strategies work better than others maybe like yeah. just like, be good and be indispensable <laughs> yeah it's easy to say right but let's see like 120 tools in a company with 200 employees or so 120 tools are not indispensable like it's just not fundamentally possible i think being somehow integrated to their workflows becomes extremely key right so if that means providing free onboarding free support free help to get them get your system to be integral to uh, somehow connected to their daily workflows uh, even if it's like just one part of that workflow right so and doing that to drive value to the customer uh, post sale is something that i think a lot of companies don't just don't do well right and if you do that really well it becomes incredibly useful right? um, because you might have uh, the 110th tool in their stack they don't really care that so that much about you after 3 months right? but until you really form a relationship with them like go meet them go meet the people behind the tool uh, understand what they want understand how you can automate a little bit of their lives uh, understand uh, i i think see ceos and founders we need to do better work over there we can't just leave it to our customer success teams because uh, it's up to us to go deliver value at the end of the day as well right like as an org as well mm, mm yeah well that reminds me of there was a, a someone smarter than me in the world of b2b product strategy they had found an insight uh, related to retention where it was like as soon as your product had like more than 3 integrations with other tools it became that much harder to rip out so it's things like trying to understand that the usage data yeah. like, are there are there things that we should build that make us as you're talking about you're integrating with the workflows is like okay if we it becomes this gordian knot if i pull this part out then these yeah. other things fall over and now i can't remove that thing exactly and honestly the customer also wants that to happen right they don't you know the thing that at least the insight that i've had like in the last i'm still learning a lot but the insight that i had was the customer truly just wants to not worry about this that's why they're buying you right like, that, like they don't want to worry about this problem they don't they're not looking for like a report they just want to like, i'm like yeah i want the result right i don't want to have to do your job for you as like a system if i'm still maintaining shit on a excel sheet versus like your uh, versus my versus something else if i'm still using excel sheets to do my job something's wrong and you better make it your life's goal to go automate that excel sheet in your tool. that's why that's why they bought you uh so but you can't do that until you meet them and it's become a lot harder i'd say to go meet your customers primarily because everybody's remote now everybody's working from different parts of the world they're not in a room together so like you have to schedule time it is a lot harder that also just means that you we have to work a lot harder as well to go get that done 
Well, let's take the other side of the fence in case there's any CFOs or folks who are responsible for controlling that SaaS spending budget. Are there any sort of pitfalls that you see from customers or maybe your non-customers? Maybe they should all just be spent for customers <laughs> is, is, is the main yeah. pitfall. That that, that, I mean, the thing is, right? Obviously, as as much as we want everybody to be a spend flow customer, right? Uh, I think it's just like three steps. You put in place some form of a requisition and uh, like an approval process, right? And make them aware of where the budget is, uh, whoever is requesting for it, right? And make your department heads aware. Like just send them like a monthly, hey, this is what you've consumed against your budget for your SaaS spend. You have money, you don't have money. Just let them know. That just giving visibility to your requesters and your department heads on, hey, this is what your software spend is. This is what you're using. Just power of information, honestly, is like super useful in this particular case because they're all responsible human beings. As soon as they know that they don't have money to spend, they stop spending money. And the second thing is that I think um, you need to get like, uh, after you get like your three systems of records, which is your hire to retire, your uh, order to cash and your procure to pay, right? You get all of these three systems, right? Uh, everything else is an add-on. So just know what your bare minimum SaaS spend is going to be look like. And just know that that's going to consume 60% of your budget or so. And then everything else is just icing on the cake. So just, just know that and be confident to make mm. the decisions because they're all reversible, right? Like you, you will make bad decisions. It's not <laughs> like so many software implementations go wrong. You're going to buy the wrong tool. But just budget it in, right? Just assume that you're going to make that mistake. Assume that you're going to have to experiment. But just keep 60%, like your bare minimum. I need this to operate my business. And then the rest mm. can move. Um, just from a leadership standpoint, just knowing that is very important. And then the third is, right, um, get an expert to kind of handle this, I'd say. Because like I said, after M&A agreements, this is the second most complicated type of agreements that you can ever handle. So if you have an expert, you're not, you're not shooting your, like the thing is the SaaS agreement really easy to get started with, but it's it, two years, three years from now, you're going to get like in a lot of pain if you don't structure that first agreement well. So structuring the first agreement or the renewal rate actually pays off dividends three years from now. So it's one of the most long-term things that you end up doing because once the tool gets sticky, you don't want to move, the cost of moving is so high, you might as well structure it right. And I think that's the third, get an expert. Some way or form, just make sure that you can get an expert. And you don't need an expert necessarily if you have like less than 250K in SaaS spend or something, like or less than 300K. If you know that you're going to scale that SaaS spend double this year or something, get that expert to make sure that they're buying for you. You're referring specifically, so these agreements, obviously they're, they can be incredibly long, you know, 40 page contracts sometimes, and just under someone who can understand, okay, hey, what are all these clauses? What, what does this mean when we come up for renewal? What does this mean if we expand? What does this mean if we get acquired? All these exactly. caveats, et cetera. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because like we work in a lot of situations where like people have signed things that they should not have and like people don't have the contracts centralized like it, those are the worst type of situations where it really really wants to get this right but they don't know where to start uh that's just because like you've uh you don't necessarily have like, you're not thinking about all this when you're starting right like when you're like small and tiny you're not really hey i need to worry about my SaaS spend but it it catches up on you so i think a good time to start thinking about it is like when you're over 60 70 people and you're you're scaling and 
you, you can start thinking about it right then because like software spend what we're seeing is that people start spending money a lot earlier than they used to they're not waiting they're not waiting to go live with salesforce they're not waiting to go live with netsuite they're not waiting to go live with these systems they will actually want to get them live asap it's just become the way of life now you segued nicely into our next topic i do want to talk about Spendflow and your experience scaling a company or two. I think you said around 120 folks now. If you maybe put yourself back in your, your shoes when you were just starting the company, yeah. maybe, what were your uh, potentially uh, untrue wisdom that you thought were going to be the challenges of scaling the company that ended up? I was like, oh, this is actually, it was actually entirely different. Um, what, how did you think it would go versus how it did go? Is there any specific sort yeah. of wisdom that you thought, oh, this is how it's going to run? I honestly assume that because I've been through that journey before, but not as the CEO, but as one of the early employees, um, I got to see my founders. I worked with them. I saw all of that in person, like in just in front. Of, I kind of assumed that I knew how to do this because, hey, I've been through this. I, I just don't have to make the same mistakes that they made. I, so I, I just assumed, like I, I made sure that I did make those same mistakes, but I made a lot of new ones. And I just didn't know there's so much more to it than what meets the eye and um, I think that the things that are very simple things right like I we run a cross-border team we run teams in the North America we run teams in India we run teams across the world right so a lot of cultural nuance uh, mm -hmm. building cross-functional teams a lot of communication nuances as well right like people are working honestly we transparent is working 24 7 we have folks working uh Sometimes India time, sometimes EST, PST, we were all around the world, right? Like across the world. So uh, how does that affect uh, our team's health? How does that affect performance? A bunch of unknowns, right? And we made the clock, like, I think every SaaS business kind of makes this mistake and every SaaS CEO kind of has to make this mistake is that you, you raise capital and the first thing you need to do is go spend that money, right? Uh, but one thing that you don't do is your spend always hits 100%, but your revenue is never going to get to 100% as, as quickly as your spend is, right? So a classic mistake everybody does and they and everybody tells you <laughs> that you're going to make this mistake, but it's just a mistake that you have to make, right? It's not necessarily... Like it's something that you do when you learn from. I think mm. we, we've made all of those classic ones, but we've kind of avoided a lot as well at the same time. We've built a bunch of rituals around the company that like, kind of holds us together, right? And uh, good, bad, uh, in how we take them, how I've personally evolved, how my co-founders have personally evolved, how the leadership is personally evolved. I mean, it's truly been one of the best experiences, right? Like I, I actually have enjoyed the like zero to one was a lot of fun as well. Like it was pretty quick for us. Uh, we had an amazing early team that week we were able to get together. And the scaling stage has actually been a lot more fun actually, because my learning curve is much, you know, a lot steeper <laughs> as well. <laughs> Set aside. Yeah, well, as you mentioned, the financial, uh, getting ahead of your skis on spending versus revenue. I think we all, also, a lot of people got lulled to sleep in the, the free money environment for better or worse that we were in where it was just like oh well if i were you know we were low on money i'll just go raise another round and then the music stopped you did mention something there in terms of i really keyed on when you said we built rituals because you, you were scaling a team it's a cross-border team trying to build a, a leadership yeah. around you that that kind of first or second level of leadership can you talk a little bit of what rituals did you establish yeah. to try to as you started managing the business sort of one step removed yeah. as you grew as an organization yeah, I think like the thing that we did really well is actually go and hire leaders pretty quickly. Like literally the first quarter of this year, we actually had like the first two quarters of this year, we actually had most of our leaders in place. And 
they brought a team with them in most cases, right? Like they brought people who worked with them, trust them. Uh, and we built it, like we built, we have leaders in, in, in North America, we have leaders in India as well, right? So it's truly been that, that journey has been, uh, we've been pretty lucky that way. We've we have pretty good leaders at the same time, right? Like first time CEO. So you can imagine it, it, it becomes when you have these really smart people around you, uh, you better get really smart really quickly as well, right? Because you got to learn and that's the, uh, a very steep learning curve. So I actually got this advice from a good friend of mine, really um, thought, thoughtful private equity operator, right? And he asked me to read this book called The Advantage. A guy called Patrick Lencioni kind of wrote that book. And, oh, yeah, he uh, wrote The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. Yeah, I haven't, yeah. Read, I haven't heard of The Advantage. I'll put it up. Yeah, it's actually a pretty, pretty solid read. It talks about you just need four meetings to run a company. And it's like a weekly catch-up with your leaders. You do a daily stand-up uh, with them. And you do a monthly strategy review, uh, which is just to, hey, am I in the right direction? Are we going in the right direction? Where we messed up? What do we need to learn? Then we do a quarterly leadership offsite, right? But nobody teaches you this. Like my, it's not like my board is telling me this. My investors are telling me this. Uh, I used to like run them at my previous company. I never understood why we did it. It just started, right? Just thought it was a waste of time, honestly. Uh, mm. But but they all four have to happen, like for it to be successful. You just can't do a weekly catch up and not do a stand up. You can't just do a weekly catch up and just go meet at the quarter end or something. It has to be a ritual that you create. And honestly. We started putting that in place in like Q3, Q2 of this year when we raised our Series A and we started scaling, right? So when we did that, right, really, really uh, create that ritual. And what that, what I was hoping for was uh, that ritual enabled our, my, my leaders to create that ritual with their teams, right? And it's slowly happening. It's taking a little bit of time, but I think that ritual was very key. And actually the second ritual that was super useful, I think I still do it every week. Uh, this is like the CEO of Jump Cloud, Raj. He was the one who taught me this. He said, uh, they're like 850 people, fully remote team. He sends out like a weekly kind of newsletter to the team on what he's thinking. Like what are his priorities, what he's mm -hmm. thinking about uh, for the week and everything. So I, I, and I started doing that as well. Like I started getting my leaders to send me like, we have an internal Slack kind of, think of it like an internal Slack Twitter thread, like with updates from every department lead on priorities for the week, highlights from last week, right? And it goes to the entire company. I pick up things that are important to me from that. And I send out that weekly, hey, this is like CEO top of mind for the week. Uh, so we call it the This Week at Spendflow. Uh, a lot of people now make fun of it now. But I add like the song of the week for me, the podcast of the week for me to that, just to keep it entertaining. Which of course is going to be Saskatoon. Yes, this is going to be this one. <laughs> it's going to go out next week now. So I add that. I, I also send like a monthly kind of like an investor type update to my team as well, right? Like, so that's something that I think has been truly helpful. I wish I could do more. I want to keep doing more, but uh, these are some rituals that we follow. I love that idea of a weekly newsletter because I think this is a lesson I, I grew up in, in a lot of the product management, product strategy world. And you, it becomes grating because you're like, I feel like I'm in a meeting all the time just yes. recounting the same story. Like, hey, here's the strategy. This is why we're not doing that. This is why we're doing this instead. And you just, you know, you forget when you're in it that everyone else is not in it as much as you. And like, even if, you know, yet same newsletter probably was 80% the same week on week, it would probably have 
value for the people in the company because they're oh no oh yeah i totally forgot because i had a week of customer support i've been angry yes. customer calls it's like oh why are we doing this again oh yeah that's why we're doing this when you talk about rituals i want to tie kind of rituals and culture together because i uh, i am curious you talked about you built this international team this cross-border team um you've scaled leadership as well as you know, individual contributors quite yeah. rapidly and uh, there was a good article. There's a guy, John Cutler, who I absolutely love, mm -hmm. a really brilliant uh, strategist. He was head of uh, evangelism for Amplitude for a while, and I think he's over at Toast. But just his, he writes an amazing blog. And he wrote recently about this. He talks a lot about the tragedies that happen in product and development teams. Um, mm. And one of the things he was talking about in one of his recent posts was when we have like Agile Grum has this idea of a daily standup, right? But mm -hmm. it can, depending upon the culture you're in, that stand-up can either be empowering where, you know, the team is supportive and collaborative and like, hey guys, I'm blocked here and everyone's brainstorming and helping each other. And you know, it's a, it's almost like this design atmosphere. And then you can have entirely other cultures where it's, I keep my head down. I, my daily stand-up update was pretty much, you could have understood it by just looking at Jira and understood what, because I'm just going to tell you the status of the ticket. Like my only job in that is to not get yelled at or called out, right? <laughs> and so, so you can have a ritual in an entirely different culture, and it can be yeah, dis it can become dysfunctional. So I'm curious how you think about yeah. the culture that you've built, and how do you think about making those rituals effective so they don't just become this empty time suck? I so I've learned this the hard way as well. Like I sometimes I I was part of both, right? I've been part of both mm. type of standups, um, and the one that I really enjoy is where we don't necessarily talk about it. Honestly, like the thing, I realized this, right? Like I'm like, I go to that stand-up and I speak about all kinds of things. We smile, we laugh, we kind of talk about, I truly enjoy those where you're just like, you're pulling up one of your colleagues on something or you're like pulling his leg on something or there's somebody's pulling my leg on something. You're actually having like a, it's just a bunch of friends coming together and you're like having that. And then if it's something really important, then you get into it, right? But the click, the time between, you can't really time it. It's not like you can, um, you have to talk trash for the first couple of minutes and then you get into work. That really works. But if you don't talk trash for the first couple of minutes and it's okay, right? Like it's 10 minutes of your day. Like it's 15 minutes of your day. It's mm. perfectly fine. Nobody's that busy. Like, and honestly, I started doing this. I, I consciously do this now. Like I talk trash for the like five, to five to seven minutes and I do that consciously so then then everybody kind of frees up and I'm like hey guys what's the blockers that's it because I kind of get your updates like what do you nearly need what do we need to get to okay this is what I'm working on like, rather than it being like something mundane uh, as well uh, yeah, it, yeah. It, that's been something that I think I've been doing uh, but it's something you have to be really conscious about because like at the leadership level I can do this because then I have control over it but does that translate to the rest of the organization? It's, I don't have that much control over that at this point. It's mm. not every standup is going to be the same. Not every team standup is going to be the same. And that's, if I start worrying about that, I wouldn't be running a company right now. But I think it's particularly difficult because especially as we've gotten into, it sounded like, have you guys always been a remote first? No, actually, so we actually have a hype. Like we were remote for the first, I see we only went in person in India in the Indian team four months or five months ago. Before that, mm. we were completely remote. We're remote in North America, uh, but we have two offices, in Ch one in Chennai and one in Bangalore in, in India. So uh, we're still three days a week at the office. We still meet in the office. There's a lot of like things. And 
in, in, in the Indian offices, but yes, it's, it's hybrid and it's confusing. That's what I'd call it. <laughs> well, I was going to say that because I think we lost some of that in the, the shift to remote or hybrid work, because always I remember you know, back in, you know, I was working more of a corporate job, and, you know, you go to a conference room and it takes everyone's literally having to travel between rooms. So <sighs> as people filter in, the meeting doesn't start yet. And so it just naturally, you have this time to be like, oh, hey, what are you working on? What, how are your kids? Whatever. And then we went to this world of a Zoom meeting where just everyone's oh, man, so back to back. No, yeah. There's no time to go to the bathroom. There's no time to, to check your email. There's no time to do anything. And then the meeting starts. And I, and I think it's, I'm glad you mentioned sort of you're trying to drive that from a leadership aspect, because if you don't have that, it, you can feel like, oh, I'm intruding on everyone's time because everyone's back to back and we just got to get to the meat of it because we've lost that cultural acceptance of that time to kind of just gel before that we get to business. I'm, I'm trying to like conscious just not talk about work in before <laughs> starting any meeting. And, I'm, and that's something that I, I'm consciously doing because honestly, uh, it, you know, in the middle, it was just like, hey, man, I'm just doing eight hours of meetings every day and I don't know who I'm talking to it's really hard to personally connect with people, right? Yeah, if you don't yeah. have that. And this remote setting, that I think has been the hardest part, I think, of starting a company in 2020 or 2021 and 2022 or anything. Like, I think that's, um, honestly, it's just a new way of operating. I don't think you could necessarily put like uh, the CEO, like a 90-90 company in charge of a 2023 version of a company. No way. I don't think they'll survive. It wouldn't be. No, Jack Welch, even on his best. No, day, Jack Welch is not going to, nah, Jack Welch <laughs> is not going to be able to run this. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> I think he gets well, so well, pissed. He's like, I'll fire everybody. Let everybody go to the office. <laughs> like, well, well, Sid, I could talk to you all day, but I do want to respect your time yeah, yeah, and yeah. start to wrap it up. So I got a couple lightning round questions. Are you ready? Fantastic. Yeah, let's go. All right. All right. Sid, how do you define success? Um, I think for me, uh, personally, if a couple of people in five, 10 years down the line or right, leave SpendFlow and they go start their own companies, and just because they were part of the SpendFlow uh, way or the SpendFlow rituals that they follow, the journey that they've been at SpendFlow, uh, they become ridiculously successful because of that. Like they, they actually are able to create something and we played a small part of that. Uh, journey like that for me is success amazing are there any habits that you've cultivated to help you stay on the top of your game either via kind of intellectual or mental or emotional yeah i like just emotionally i did start meditating after starting the company actually so uh, in the mornings a little bit but just working out every day is super important i think for me just getting a walk in something right uh, just makes me feel a lot more on top of my game um Honestly, and I think the third is I, I, I wish I did this more, but I take some time to just read, right? Like I, I spend as much time as possible just reading. I have like, I listen to amazing podcasts like yours, Dan, and I listen to like amazing like books. I like, I'm just like consciously absorbing stuff. I think that's something that I've learned. I learned how to like do that a lot better now. Yeah, my it was a plus one on the meditation, and also I got my Spotify wrapped, and it said I spent twenty thousand minutes this year on podcasts. So maybe wow, I need to, maybe I need to back off. Yeah, you that. need to cut also, down now. <laughs> if I could give you a billboard and you could put any advice on there for other B two B SaaS CEOs trying to scale their companies, what would you put on the billboard? I'd actually say run that weekly ritual email, like that weekly newsletter. Type it. 
right? Honest to God, it's been one of the most transformational things that has happened to me. Uh, it's helped me a ton, right? Like I, it's the, the most tactical, practical thing to do. Just take it and run with it. There's no excuse for you not doing it. Write a weekly company newsletter update. Love it. Yep. Sid, thank you for sharing your journey and insights. Before we wrap up, how can our listeners connect with you or follow SpendFlow's ongoing story? Yeah, LinkedIn is the best place to follow us and me personally. So pretty active there. Uh, happy to help with anything. I will also shamelessly ask for help as well. I'm pretty shameless that way. So uh, feel free to reach out and I'm happy to do anything. Uh, thank you so much, Dan, for taking the time. Appreciate it. And we will definitely put links in the show notes for our listeners. Everyone, that wraps up this episode of SaaS Scaly Secrets. A massive thank you to Sid for sharing his journey, insights, and valuable tips. For our listeners, if you found this conversation as enlightening as I did, remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on future episodes. Till next time, keep innovating, growing, and pushing the boundaries of what's possible.